Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible with you today, let's turn to the last chapter of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 24, or the uh, particular text for today is on page 11 in your bulletin. Let's finish out this Gospel. As Jesus' disciples were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they, were, thought they, thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I, myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. And send the Spirit now, our Lord, we pray, to work as we hear this word. In Jesus' good name, amen. Do you guys ever find yourself bothered by the fact that God is invisible? I mean, if we're honest, isn't that, isn't that kind, of, kind of a tough thing? Does it ever frustrate you a little that our Messiah is in heaven? You know how much easier my job would be as a pastor if I could just say to people who don't believe in Jesus, well, let me take you to his house. You know, there's an interesting moment in Israel's early history where God, in all of his terrifying glory, is far up on Mount Sinai, and he's out of sight. He is invisible behind a cloud. And Moses goes up that mountain, and he disappears into that cloud. And within a few days, it might not even have been that long, Israel becomes frustrated with this, and the line that they say is, as for this Moses, we don't know what has become of him. And because they don't know what has become of him, they build this, golden, this infamous golden calf, which you've heard about. And so, interesting what they say about that golden calf. Now, they have, a, they have this, this you know, metal, metal thing that you can kind of, a you know, metal god that you can kind of pat on the head. And the line they, they, they utter is, this bad boy is the one who brought us out of Egypt. Moses don't know what became of him, and they make an idol. Now, I just want you to imagine that scene for a moment. Just imagine we're looking at that scene, and let's imagine they're right. Mentally erase the cloud and the glory. There's no God up there. There's nothing beyond what you can see. Moses is up there clambering around on Sinai somewhere. That's all there is, and they're down there dancing around this piece of metal, and the Egyptians show up. What happens? There's either a massacre or there's mass enslavement because the only reason why these Israelites are no longer slaves 
The only reason why they are eating bread from heaven out here in this rock wilderness, and the only reason they are on their way to a promised land is because God is beyond that cloud. And Moses can enter that invisible, unseen glory. That's the only reason these people have any hope whatsoever. Now today, people will ask, if Jesus is real, please, Christians, why is he not here? How convenient to believe in a Jesus, a Savior, who's not with us. It is tempting, isn't it, to say, like Israel, we don't know what's become of him. Why isn't Jesus here? I didn't do a very good job last week, but I tried to give you the Bible's answer to that question. It's, it's a big answer. Why is Jesus not here? It's a, it's a simple but a huge answer. The reason Jesus is not here is because he has entered the unseen realm of glory from which God reigns. Can I say that again? The reason Jesus is not here where we can see him and touch him is because he has entered the unseen realm of glory from which God himself reigns. This last chapter of Luke's gospel is about how these disciples come to recognize that Jesus is so alive, he must now live and reign from that unseen realm of God's glory. He's just too alive to merely live like we do. He is so alive now, he must live in that unseen realm of God's glory and reign from it like God does. He's just that alive. It's a strange thing in this chapter. We, we tried to talk about it a little bit last week. You know, Jesus shows himself in this chapter, but in many ways, he shows himself precisely to show that he is now beyond mere showing. You notice that? He shows himself, but he shows himself in a way where you kind of have to draw the conclusion he's... He's showable, but he's also beyond just what can be shown now. He has not just been resuscitated. <laughs> Thanks be to God. He has not just been brought back on stage to take up, you know, a role as a character in this play, in existence as we know it. That's resuscitation. God didn't just resuscitate Jesus, put him back here, and now he's just kind of doing like we do. He has been resurrected. That's a very different thing. Jesus is now so alive, he's not on stage. He is the unseen director of the entire cosmic theater. He is now the unseen director of everything seen and unseen, and that is why these disciples have hope for everything that they see happening on stage. That's why we have hope right now for everything we see happening on stage. Jesus is the unseen director now. He's that alive. And we saw this on the road to Emmaus last week, where two otherwise unknown disciples, they come to recognize the presence of this risen Lord who also cannot be enclosed within our circumstances and our expectations. So Jesus, they recognize he is present with them, but he vanishes. Why? Because Jesus is breaking open his disciples' little Messiah box. Because that little Messiah box doesn't have any room in it for the fact that the Messiah could die and be raised from the dead. Can I just tell you something? If your Messiah box isn't big enough to include Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, you need a new Messiah box. And that is what Jesus is going after with these disciples. He has to break open and show them, you know, if he just simply reappeared, I'm back, they'd think he's back to do all the Messiah stuff we thought he would do. But instead what Jesus does is before he even shows himself to them, he, he takes them through a serious Bible study 
because they need to be able to see from the scriptures of Israel that the Messiah had to suffer for sins. He had to take down the serpent by absorbing his death strike. He had to to take that flaming sword of God's curse and take it on himself, and then he had to enter into glory. That was always the plan. And after the Bible study, you'll remember, there was a meal. A meal where as they eat with Jesus and they're breaking bread with him and he, he appear, they recognize him. He doesn't appear. He's already there, but they recognize him and then he vanishes. That meal shows the disciples that from this invisible glory into which Jesus has entered, he is still with us to provide everything we need. We are not orphans. And through the ages of the church, including today in this worship service, as the people of God gather under the word pointing to Jesus, around tables, the Lord is present. But the story continues after the road to Emmaus. Only here, in the verses we just read, it's in reverse order. So on the Emmaus, in the Emmaus story, it's Bible study, then food. Here, it's food and then a Bible study. And I want to talk just for a moment or two from verses 36 to 42 about the Lord who dines on fish. The Lord who dines on fish. We have a food story, as we did in Emmaus. And in this first food story in our text, sorry, in the first food story back in Emmaus, right? So at that meal at the end of the road in Emmaus last week, there was this, there was this major tension in that story between, I've already mentioned this, between the fact that Jesus is recognized at the table, like he's breaking bread and they suddenly recognize, oh, it's you. So it is obvious in that story that Jesus is present, but there's a real tension because he immediately vanishes. And so it seems like he's also absent. So there's this weird tension in Emmaus between the presence of Jesus as the risen one and also the fact that he seems like he's, he's absent. And I think that the point of that story is that Jesus is present with us in our earthly, embodied human life. But that story tells us he is present with us in a way that totally transcends our life. He is beyond us and above us, even as he is with us. But there's that tension in that story. And here in this food story, this second food story, it's interesting that tension just dissolves entirely. There is no tension between is Jesus present or is he somehow sort of transcendent. That's not really, we don't feel that tension here. He does not disappear. The point of this appearing, as you read through it, seems to be that Jesus resurrected humanity, his embodied resurrected humanity, while it clearly still, like in Emmaus, it does transcend, it does go far beyond life as we know it. I mean, he, he, he just appears among them. That's weird. <laughs> That's not usual. But even though this one who shows up in this story, in his resurrected body, even though his resurrected humanity truly is beyond what we experience in this world, the point of this story is that, that his resurrected humanity is humanity in its absolutely fullest sense. This one who shows up in this room to the disciples, he can walk in the realm of spirits. Like That's not like us. But he is no spirit. Jesus embodies in this text the resurrection body. Like body, people. Resurrection body. He embodies it. He's, he's real. He's solid. <laughs> He's touchable. He says, come, come feel my hands and feet. He's ready to eat. Even as his body can appear and disappear. 
I love how C.S. Lewis wrestles with, what is this? Who is this Jesus? What is, it? what is this resurrection body? Because what is obvious as you read this text is that Jesus is not spiritual if by spirit you mean disembodied. God is spirit, does not have a body like men, right kids? Well, Jesus is not disembodied here. He is not spiritual in that sense. But neither is he just natural as we experience nature. He, uh, this is Lewis's line. He has passed into a life which has its own new nature. It is still nature. It is not just spirit, but it is, has its own new resurrected nature, says Lewis. And Jesus goes to some lengths to assure his disciples here. I mean, he really kind of emphasizes it multiple times that my body, disciples, although it is certainly different, it's not quite the same body you knew before, it is not an illusion, it is a body. And again, Lewis is just masterful in this. If you guys have never read his book, Miracles, oh, please, just bless yourself. But Lewis says this about the fact that Jesus, he, he presses the point, I'm not an illusion. This is a body, it's real, it's touchable, it can eat. Lewis says, if the truth is that after death, there comes a negatively spiritual life, an eternity of mystical experience. See, that, parenthetically, is what most of us kind of dread when we're little. We hear about heaven, and it sounds like we're spirits kind of floating like fog, and we sing. Some of us play harps, God help us. We just kind of like sing all the time, and it's just kind of this weird, disembodied, nothing real, nothing solid, nothing substantive. If the truth, if, if Jesus, if, if what God's trying to tell us here is that the truth is after death, that's what it's like, says Lewis, then what more misleading way of communicating it could possibly be found than the appearance of a human form which eats broiled fish? If God wants to tell you guys, listen, when you die, you just turn into a spirit and float around for eternity, you couldn't find a worse way of communicating that than to have something show up that eats broiled fish. The body then, says Lewis, would really be a hallucination. God would really be giving us not an actual body, but a hallucination that looks like a body to help us kind of understand what it's like to float around in spirits forever. And then I just love Lewis on this. He says, any theory of hallucination, any idea that God is giving us a hallucination here with Jesus, that he's not a real body, he's just kind of a hallucination. He says that whole theory breaks down on the fact that on three separate occasions in the Gospels, this hallucination was not immediately recognized as Jesus. Now, even granting that God sent a holy hallucination, which we do not grant, but even granting that he sent a hallucination here, might we not at least hope that God would get the face of the hallucination right? Is the one who made all faces such a bungler he cannot even work up a recognizable likeness of the man who was himself? Like if God was sending a hallucination, do you think he would make it an unrecognizable hallucination? I mean, it's the whole thing is just madness. Clearly, what's going on here is that Jesus, yes, he has a bodily life now that is certainly beyond visible realities as we know them. But the reason his body is beyond visible realities as we know them is because it is more real, not less. Yes? He's more real. He's not less real. He's more solid than we are. He's, his resurrection body is more substantive than ours. Dare I say, his body is more natural after the resurrection as God intended human nature to be to display his glory. It's more of that. 
And I'd like you to notice in verse 41 that the fruit of the disciples' realization of this is joy. They are, they're just so full of joy. They're certainly not rejoicing that Jesus has once again been confined in nature as we know it. They're not rejoicing because of a resuscitation. Great, he's back. We get to start everything over just exactly as it was. That's not what makes them rejoice because that's not true. But on the other side of things, neither are they rejoicing that now our Lord has just passed beyond the realm of bodily things altogether and he now floats for eternity as a spirit out in the ether. That is not what brings them joy. Their joy is that here is the body as it is meant to be fully alive, breathing, talking, touchable, eating fish. And joy because, you know, they realize in that moment, and it only dawned on them more and more as they thought and, and preached the scriptures over the coming years, joy because that that we're looking at, eating fish before us, that's what Jesus saved us to become. That's what he saved us for. Someday we're gonna be fully alive like that. Somehow, one day, we are going to be equally at home in the glory cloud of God himself in God's heavenly life or enjoying a good meal in this good world God has made. Can you imagine? One day, you'll just like walk into heavenly glory and then you'll be back in the world enjoying broiled fish. That's, you'll be able to enjoy all of it. The body is more alive in the resurrection. And if we know that that is our future, brothers and sisters, there are going to be things in this world with its sin and its death and its corruption. There are going to be things in this world to which you, as you realize that is my future, there are going to be things in this world you are going to say no to. No, I will not do that. No, I will not partake of that. But the reason you will say no is not because you are a negative Nelly about creation. You're going to say no to some things in this world because you love creation as God intends it to be. Because of the resurrection, you will reaffirm your love of creation as God has planned it to be precisely by saying no. <laughs> no to anything that could corrupt my walk toward that glory. Why will you say no in order to say yes to creation? Because that's what God did in raising Jesus from the dead. I think it was Oliver O'Donovan in Resurrection Moral Order who said that the resurrection is God's resounding reaffirmation of his commitment to creation as it's meant to be, a theater of his glory on another whole level. And Lewis, again, talks about this renouncing certain things in this world that we might lay hold of that creation for which we were made. He says, there is in our present pilgrim condition plenty of room, more room than most of us like, for abstinence and renunciation and mortifying our natural desires. But behind all asceticism, all saying no, the thought should be who will trust us with the true wealth if we can't be trusted even with the wealth that perishes? Who will trust me with a spiritual body if I cannot control even an earthly body? These small and perishable bodies we now have were given to us as ponies are given to schoolboys. We must learn to manage. Not that we may someday be free of horses altogether, but that someday we may ride bareback, confident and rejoicing those greater mounts 
those winged, shining, and world-shaking horses which perhaps even now expect us with impatience, pawing and snorting in the king's stables. Not that that coming gallop would be of any value unless it were a gallop with the king, but how else, since he has retained his own charger, should we accompany him? That's the renunciation of a Christian. I want to ride the charger of a resurrected body in the company of the king and the world to come. And so there are things I will say no to, the lusts of the flesh in this age, precisely because of my love of creation as God intended it to be. That is the Lord who dines on fish. A bit more briefly, I'd like to speak in verses 43 through 53 about the Lord who reigns from heaven, the Lord who rules from heaven. Because having, in those earlier verses, revealed something of this solid hope that awaits all of us who who follow him, the king is about to ride his glorious war horse, his resurrected body, into the heavens, into God's glory. And so the question then is, what are his disciples to do as they continue riding their ponies? Their small, earthly, perishable bodies in this world. Well, Jesus gives them a second Bible study. So Bible study and food on the way to Emmaus now, food, then a Bible study. And this Bible study, again, it has some of the same things as the first Bible study. It, it shows, again, from the scriptures, how all of the Bible points to the fact that the Messiah would suffer for our sins and that he would be victorious over death, rising on the third day from, from the dead, verse 46. But there is something else in this Bible study because Jesus goes on to show his disciples from the scriptures That God's plan has been more than just that. God's plan has always been, through that Christ, that all nations, he said to Abraham right out of the gate in Genesis 12, all families of the earth will come to know this great saving work that he has done through his Christ, that sins have been paid for. There is forgiveness. And he has been raised from the dead in order that he might raise us from the dead, where death, the greatest enemy, has no power over us anymore. God wants all nations to know that. As Isaiah pictures it, God wants the nations like water to run uphill to Zion. And as Jesus puts it there in verse 47, he wants the nations, the peoples of the earth, people as far away as Long Island in 2023, he wants them to experience repentance, turning from the false gods, these dead, dying helpless, hopeless things that we all worship so easily, turn from those things, repent of that, and have our sins forgiven, and be blessed with God in obedient faith, Jesus says. Repentance and forgiveness preached among all nations starting from Jerusalem. That is the mission of the church then in verse 48. Jesus says, you're my witnesses. You want to know what you do on your pony for the rest of your life? You are my witnesses of these things. Christ has died. Christ is raised. Christ reigns. Notice two things. It is good that he goes. It is good that he goes. He must go. Why? So that from the Father's throne on high, he may pour out that gift that his Father has been promising for ages and ages. There's coming a time, the prophets tell us, when the mighty, rushing, life-giving wind of God, the ruach of God, the, the breath, the Spirit of God is going to be poured out on all flesh. He must go to send that spirit. He is ascending to the Father's right hand in order to hurl down upon the earth, starting in Jerusalem, but then like depth charges, just, just exploding out to the ends of the earth 
to, to, to give that power that has mantled him throughout his earthly ministry. He's going to give it to his Elisha, his church. A double portion of that spirit that mantled him. That spirit that raised him from the dead will raise them from the dead and through their witness will raise the nations. That is what he must do. He must unleash that wind upon the earth. He must go. It's good that he goes. And it's good that we stay. That may seem strange. It's good that we stay. Because while these disciples are not yet with him where he is and they long to be, while their bodies are not yet resurrected and they long for that, while their humanity is not yet glorified, in their very earthliness and weakness, they will be filled with the spirit of this risen Lord. And in the power of that spirit, they will bear witness even with their blood among all nations of the earth. Jesus is king. He's king. Beloved saints, you are still breathing today not because God is especially interested in whatever little micro kingdom it is you are so very much wanting to build, because, but because he has put you in this world while you breathe to be a witness of his kingdom. And the identical moment your mission in doing that is done, you will be with him. That is what we are here for. That in our spirit-filled lives and through the preaching of the gospel, we, the church throughout the world, are proclaiming among the nations, Christ has died, Christ has risen, he is risen indeed. I want to conclude with this. I might go on and preach Acts, Luke's second volume sometime, but for now, let's finish Luke with this. My favorite line that I've read so far in all of Wendell Berry's writings is a little two-word phrase in one of his Sabbath poems, and it is this. Practice resurrection. Practice resurrection. And I like that, and I think about it all the time, because it seems like I don't quite know what that means. Can you actually practice resurrection? You can practice resurrection if you understand that there are two ways to die. There are two ways to die. Your life can be taken from you, or you can lay it down. One of those two. If you and I live for ourselves, brothers and sisters, you'll die the first way. Slowly, over time, your life will be taken from you. There will be so much that will not work out that you hope will work out. There will be a bunch of other stuff that does work out, and then you will find it will decay. You will discover the world is full of something called entropy, and it is relentless. And in the end, even if you build up all of your sandcastles until they are just ready to face the ocean, everything will be lost as your last breath is taken from you. And in such a life, there is actually only slow, steady death. The only question is how quickly it will come. The only question is how quickly your life will be taken from you. That is all you have. That is one way to die. But there's another way to die. If you take your life and you lay it down before this king of glory and you say, I am yours, body and soul, my reason for existing is to love and serve you, to bear witness of you by my words and my deeds. My life is yours to do with as you will. Do with me as you will. Do you realize if that is how you die, your life cannot ever be stolen? It cannot ever be taken. You will still die, but you will die in an entirely different way. 
Because again and again, with each breath you draw, with each day and week and year that you live, your Lord will call upon you to lay down your life afresh. Jesus bids us, says Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he bids come and die. You will be called upon to lay it down, to lay your possessions down, to lay your very life down, to lay your relationships down, to lay your pride down, to lay just all of it your time, you'll be asked again and again, lay it down before this king. Give everything to Jesus. And every time you do that, every time you lay down your life before him, your Lord will bring life and he will bring glory out of that death. You will behold over and over and over and over throughout your pilgrimage in this world, long before that final resurrection for which we hope, you will see the life-giving power of God. Is it not already our experience in this little assembly of believers that amid the entropies of this world, we have seen God bring life? Is it not our experience here? I thought with tears this week of our sister Sarah Van Dyke's testimony years ago before the young adults of how God puts dust back together, bringing her back from the very brink of death. I thought of the agonies of parenting. Parenting is dying. And as you die, as you're raising these children for the Lord, the risen King, you gradually over time see in the dying that there is the, the growth of faith. We have young people in this church who know Jesus is King. They self-identify as Christians. That's the life of dying as moms and dads. You see wisdom grow, but it's slow, isn't it? You see Christian purpose grow. It takes time. It takes dying. I thought about the, the ups and downs of a church plant. How many of you have been seeds going into the ground and dying in order? Look around today what God has done in what's it been, 11, 12 years. That is the life of God. I thought about those moments when we sin against each other and we find through Jesus a way to forgive one another and find that even through sin and wounding, God brings resurrection life. I thought about departures. As God takes an Ellen G and a David and Jessica and they are taken from us and we are dying, but we have laid them before the Lord and we realize God is seeding new life in other places. I thought about our sister Simone to sit with her a week ago Friday and to hear her say to me, I could not even wrap my mind around it. She said, Pastor Ben, I have been in so much pain. I thought the pain would kill me before the cancer did. And in the agony on the floor of my room crying out, God, why would you do this to me? She said, do you know what has come over the course of these weeks as I have screamed out to God in the wee hours of the morning? I have discovered that I am learning something I never knew, and that is the gospel. Because I have spent my whole life, you know, Simone, she is a, she's, a, she's, a, she's a freight train, that woman. So much energy and power and force. She said, I have spent so much of my life implicitly, though I knew the gospel on paper, thinking that it was about what I do for God that pleases him and makes me right with him. I, now that I can do nothing except cry on the floor of my room. I am finding the reality that is all what Jesus has done, and I have peace with God through him alone. And I'm finding the gospel at the end of my life as I never found it before, growing spiritually as my body wastes away. That's resurrection. That's the power of God at work in a dying saint. That's Jesus. And what I so long for for me and for you as we wrap up this gospel is that we would lay our lives down before this king. And that we would stand and see through the pain and the decay and the entropy and the death and the corruptions that we encounter in this world, we would see God bring life.
And if it doesn't happen in our generation, to a thousand generations until that great day, and it is coming for us, beloved, when at last we will mount those risen chargers with Jesus, and then we will ride with him into a life that is just beyond all describing. Amen. Amen. So, Lord, carry us through whatever time remains until the resurrection. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.